Chapter Eleven of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. They got through the supper without any trouble, and the aunts went home in the early twilight, each with her bonnet strings tied precisely, her lace mitts drawn smoothly over her bony hands, and her little knitting bag over her right arm. They walked decorously up the shaded elm-domed street each mindful of her aristocratic instep and trying to walk erect as in the days when they were gazed upon with admiration knowing that still an air of former greatness hovered about them wherever they went they had brightened considerably at the supper-table under the genial influence of david's presence they came as near to worshipping david as one can possibly come to worshipping a human being David, desirous above all things of blinding their keen, sure to say, I told you so, old eyes, roused to be his former gay self with them, and pleased them so, that they did not notice how little lover-like reference he made to his bride, who was decidedly in the background for the time, the aunts perhaps purposely, desiring to show her a wife's true place, at least the true place of a wife of a David. They had allowed her to bring their things and help them on with capes and bonnets, and when they were ready to leave, Aunt Amelia put out a lifeless hand that felt in its silk mitt like a dead fish in a net, and said to Marcia, Our sister Clorinda is desirous of seeing David's wife. She wished us most particularly to give you her love, and say to you that she wishes you to come to her at the earliest possible moment you know she is lame and cannot easily get about young folks should always be ready to wait upon their elders said aunt hortense grimly come as soon as you can that is if you think you can stand the smell of salt rising marcia's face flushed painfully and she glanced quickly at david to see if he had noticed what his aunt had said but david was already anticipating the moment when he would be free to lay aside his mask and bury his face in his hands and his thoughts in sadness. Marcia's heart sank as she went about clearing off the supper things. Was life always to be thus? Would she be forever under the espionage of those two grim specters of women who seemed, to her girlish imagination, to have nothing about them warm or loving or woman-like? She seemed to herself to be standing outside of a married life and looking on at it as one might gaze on a panorama. It was all new and painful, and she was one of the central figures expected to act on through all the pictures, taking another's place, yet doing it as if it were her own. She glanced over at David's pale, grave face, set in its sadness, and a sharp pain went through her heart. Would he ever get over it? Would life never be more cheerful than it now was? He spoke to her occasionally in a pleasant abstracted way as to one who understood him and was kind not to trouble his sadness, and he lighted a candle for her when the work was done and said he hoped she would rest well, that she must still be weary from the long journey. And so she went up to her room again. She did not go to bed at once, but sat down by the window looking out on the moonlit street. There had been some sort of a meeting at the church across the way, and the people were filing out and taking their various ways home, calling pleasant good nights and speaking cheerily of the morrow. 
the moon though beginning to wane was bright and cast sharp shadows marshall longed to get out into the night if she could have got downstairs without being heard she would have slipped out into the garden but downstairs she could hear david pacing back and forth like some hurt caged thing steadily dully he walked from the front hall back into the kitchen and back again there was no possibility of escaping his notice marcia felt as if she might breathe freer in the open air so she leaned far out of her window and looked up and down the street and thought finally her heart swelled to bursting as young hearts with their first little troubles will do she leaned down her dark head upon the window seat and wept and wept alone it was the next morning at breakfast that david told her of the festivities that were planned in honor of their homecoming he spoke as if they were a great trial through which they both must pass in order to have any peace and expressed his gratitude once more that she had been willing to come here with him and pass through it marcia had the impression after he was done speaking and had gone away to the office that he felt that she had come here merely for these few days of ceremony and after they were passed she was dismissed her duty done and she might go home a great lump arose in her throat and she suddenly wished very much indeed that it were so for if it were how much how very much she would enjoy queening it for a few days except for david's sadness but already there had begun to be an element to her in that sadness which in spite of herself she resented it was a heavy burden which she began dimly to see would be harder and harder to bear as the days went by she had not begun to think of the time before her in years they were to go to the aunts to tea that evening and after tea a company of david's old friends or rather the old friends of david's aunts were coming in to meet them this the aunts had planned but it seemed they had not counted her worthy to be told of the plans and had only divulged them to david marcia had not thought that a little thing could annoy her so much but she found it vexed her more and more as she thought upon it going about her work there was not so much to be done in the house that morning after the breakfast things were cleared away dinners and suppers would not be much of a problem for some days to come for the house was well stocked with good things the beds done and the rooms left in dainty order with the sweet summer breeze blowing the green tassels on the window shades marcia went softly down like some half-guilty creature to the piano she opened it and was forthwith lost in delight of the sounds her own fingers brought forth she had been playing perhaps half an hour when she became conscious of another presence in the room she looked up with a start feeling that someone had been there for some time she could not tell just how long peering into the shadowy room lighted only from the window behind her she made out a head looking in at the door the face almost hidden by a capacious sunbonnet she was not long in recognizing her visitor of the day before it was like a sudden dropping from a lofty mountain height down into a valley of annoyance to hear miranda's sharp metallic voice morning she curtsied coming in as soon as she perceived that she was seen at it again i've been listening some time it's as pretty as Silas Drew's harmonica when he comes home evenings behind the cows. 
Marcia drew her hands sharply from the keys as if she had been struck. Somehow, Miranda and music were inharmonious. She scarcely knew what to say. She felt as if her morning were spoiled. But Miranda was too full of her own errand to notice the clouded face and cool welcome. Say, you can't guess how I got over here. I'll tell you. You're going over to the Spafford house tonight, ain't you? And there's going to be a lot of folks there. Of course, we all know all about it. It's been planned for months. And my cousin Hannah Heath has an invite. You can't think how fond Miss Amelia and Miss Hortense are of her. They tried their level best to make David pay attention to her, but it didn't work. Well, she was talking about what she'd wear. She's had three new frocks made last week, all frilled and fancy. You see, she don't want to let folks think she is down in the mouth the least bit about David. She'll likely make up to you, to your face, a whole lot, and pretend she's the best friend you've got in the world. But I've just got this to say. Don't you be too sure of her friendship. She's smooth as butter, but she can give you a slap in the face if you don't serve her purpose. I don't mind telling you, for she's given me many a one and the pale eyes snapped in unison with the color of her hair. Well, you see, I heard her talking to Grandma, and she said she'd give anything to know what you were going to wear tonight. How curious, said Marcia, surprised. I'm sure I do not see why she should care. There was the coolness born of utter indifference in her reply, which filled the younger girl with admiration. Perhaps, too, there was the least mite of haughtiness in her manner, born of the knowledge that she belonged to an old and honored family, and that she had in her possession a trunk full of clothes that could vie with any that Hannah Heath could display. Miranda wished silently that she could convey that cool manner and that wide-eyed indifference to the sight of her cousin Hannah. Hmm, giggled Miranda. Well, she does. If you were going to wear blue, you'd see she'd put on her green. She's got one that'll kill any blue that's in the same room with it, no matter if it's on the other side. It's just sickening to see them together, and she looks real well in it, too. So when she said she wanted to know so bad, Grandma said she'd send me over to know if you'd accept a jar of her fresh piccalilli, and maybe I could find out about your clothes. The piccalilli's on the kitchen table. I left it when I came through. It's good, but there ain't any love in it and Miranda laughed a hard, mirthless laugh, and then settled down to her subject again. "'Now, you needn't be a mite afraid to tell me about it. I won't tell it straight, you know. I'd just like to see what you are going to wear, so I could keep her out of her tricks for once. Is your frock blue?' Now it is true that the trunk upstairs contained a goodly amount of the color blue, for Kate Schuyler had been her bonniest in blue, and the particular frock that had been made with reference to this very first significant gathering was blue. Marcia had accepted the fact as unalterable. The garment was made for a purpose, and its mission must be fulfilled, however much she might wish to wear something else. But suddenly, as Miranda spoke, there came to her mind the thought of rebellion. Why should she be bound down to do exactly as Kate would do in her place? If she had accepted the sacrifice of living Kate's life for her, she might at least have the privilege of living it in the pleasantest possible way, and surely the matter of dress was one she might be allowed to settle for herself 
if she was old enough at all to be trusted away from home. Among the pretty things that Kate had made was a sweet rose-pink silk tissue. Madame Schuyler had frowned upon it as frivolous, and besides, she did not think it becoming to Kate. She had a fixed theory that people with blue eyes and gold hair should never wear pink or red, but Kate as usual had her own way, and with her wild rose complexion had succeeded in looking like the wild rose itself in spite of blue eyes and golden hair. Marcia knew in her heart, in fact she had known from the minute the lovely pink thing had come into the house, that it was the very thing to set her off. Her dark eyes and hair made a charming contrast with the rose, and her complexion was even fresher than Kate's. Her heart grew suddenly eager to don this dainty, frilly thing, and outshine Hannah Heath beyond any chance of further trying. There were other frocks, too, in the trunk. Why should she be confined to the stately blue one that had been marked out for this occasion? Marcia, with sudden inspiration, answered calmly, just as though all these tumultuous possibilities of clothes had not been whirling through her brain in that half-second's hesitation. I have not quite decided what I shall wear. It is not an important matter, I'm sure. Let us go and see the pickle lily. I am very much obliged to your grandmother, I'm sure. It was kind of her. Somewhat odd, Miranda followed her hostess into the kitchen. She could not reconcile this girl's face with the stately little airs that she wore, but she liked her, and forthwith she told her so. I like you, she said fervently. You remind me of one of Grandma's stertions, bright and independent and lively, with a spice and a color to em. And Hannah makes you think of one of them tall spikes of gladiolus, all filled up without any smell. Marcia tried to smile over this doubtful compliment. Somehow there was something about Miranda that reminded her of Mary Ann. Poor Mary Ann! Dear Mary Ann! for suddenly she realized that everything that reminded her of the precious life of her childhood, left behind forever, was dear. If she could see Marianne at this moment, she would throw her arms about her neck and call her Dear Marianne, and say, I love you, to her. Perhaps this feeling made her more gentle with the annoying Miranda than she might have been. When Miranda was gone, the precious play hour was gone too. Marcia had only time to steal hurriedly into the parlor, close the instrument, and then fly about getting her dinner ready. But as she worked, she had other thoughts to occupy her mind. She was becoming adjusted to her new environment, and she found many unexpected things to make it hard. Here, for instance, was Hannah Heath. Why did there have to be a Hannah Heath? And what was Hannah Heath to her? Kate might feel jealous indeed, but not she not the unloved, unreal wife of David. She would rather pity Hannah Heath that David had not loved her instead of Kate, or pity David that he had not. But somehow she did not, somehow she could not. Somehow Hannah Heath had become a living, breathing enemy to be met and conquered. Marcia felt her fighting blood rising, felt the Schuyler in her coming to the front. However little there was of her wifehood, its name at least was hers. The tale that Miranda had told was enough, if it were true, to put any woman, however young she might be, into battle array. 
Marcia was puzzling her mind over the question that had been more or less of a weary burden to every woman since the fatal day that Eve made her great mistake. David was silent and abstracted at the dinner table, and Marcia, absorbed in her own problems, did not feel cut by it. She was trying to determine whether to blossom out in pink, or to be crushed and set aside into insignificance in blue, or to choose a happy medium and wear neither. She ventured a timid little question before David went away again. Did he, would he, that is, was there anything, any word he would like to say to her? Would she have to do anything tonight? David looked at her in surprise. Why, no, he knew of nothing. Just go and speak pleasantly to everyone. He was sure she knew what to do. He had always thought her very well behaved. She had manners like any woman. She need not feel shy. No one knew of her peculiar position, and he felt reasonably sure that the story would not soon get around. Her position would be thoroughly established before it did, at least. She need not feel uncomfortable. He looked down at her, thinking he had said all that could be expected of him, but somehow he felt the trouble in the girl's eyes and asked her gently if there was anything more. No, she said slowly. Unless, perhaps, I don't suppose you know what it would be proper for me to wear. Oh, that does not matter in the least, he replied promptly. Anything. You always look nice. Why, I'll tell you, wear the frock you had on the night I came. Then he suddenly remembered the reason why that was a pleasant memory to him, and that it was not for her sake at all, but for the sake of one who was lost to him forever. His face contracted with sudden pain, and Marcia, cut to the heart, read the meaning, and felt sick and sore, too. Oh, I could not wear that, she said sadly. It is only chintz. It would not be nice enough, but thank you. I shall be all right. Don't trouble about me. And she forced a weak smile to light him from the house, and shut from his pained eyes the knowledge of how he had hurt her, for with those words of his had come the vision of herself that happy night as she stood at the gate in the stillness and moonlight, looking from the portal of her maidenhood into the vista of her womanhood, which had seemed then so far away and bright, and was now upon her in sad reality. Oh, if she could but have caught that sentence of his about her little chintz frock to her heart with the joy of possession, and known that he had said it because he too had a happy memory about her in it, as she had always felt the coming, misty, dream-expected lover would do. She spread the available frocks out upon the bed after the other things were put neatly away in closet and drawer, and sat down to decide the matter. David's suggestion, while impossible, had given her an idea, and she proceeded to carry it out. There was a soft sheer white muslin, whereon Kate had expended her daintiest embroidering, edged with the finest of little lace frills. It was quaint and simple and girlish, the sweetest, most simple affair in all of Kate's elaborate wardrobe, and yet perhaps, from an artistic point of view, the most elegant. Marcia soon made up her mind. She dressed herself early, for David had said that he would be home by four o'clock, and they would start as soon after as he could get ready. His aunts wished to show her the old garden before dark. 
When she came to the arrangement of her hair, she paused. Somehow her soul rebelled at the style of Kate. It did not suit her face. It did not accord with her feeling. It made her seem unlike herself, or unlike the self she would ever wish to be. It suited Kate well, but not her. With sudden determination, she pulled it all down again from the top of her head, and loosened its rich waves about her face, then loosely twisted it behind, low on her neck, falling over her delicate ears, until her head looked like that of an old Greek statue. It was not fashion, it was pure instinct the child was following out, and there was enough conformity to one of the fashionable modes of the day to keep her from looking odd. It was lovely. Marcia could not help seeing herself that it was much more becoming than the way she had arranged it for her marriage, though then she had had the wedding veil to soften the tightly drawn outlines of her head. She put on the sheer white embroidered frock then, and as a last touch pinned the bit of black velvet about her throat with a single pearl that had been her mother's. It was the bit of black velvet she had worn the night David came. It gave her pleasure to think that in so far she was conforming to his suggestion. She had just completed her toilet when she heard David's step coming up the walk. David, coming in out of the sunshine, and beholding this beautiful girl in the coolness and shadow of the hall, awaiting him shyly, almost started back as he rubbed his eyes and looked at her again. She was beautiful. He had to admit it to himself, even in the midst of his sadness, and he smiled at her and felt another pang of condemnation that he had taken this beauty from some other man's lot, perhaps, and appropriated it to shield himself from the world's exclamation about his own lonely life. You have done it admirably. I do not see that there is anything left to be desired, he said in his pleasant voice that used to make her girl heart flutter with pride that her new brother-to-be was pleased with her. It fluttered now, but there was a wider sweep to its wings, and a longer flight ahead of the thought. Quite demurely the young wife accepted her compliment, and then she meekly folded her little white muslin cape with its dainty frills about her pretty shoulders, drew on the new lace mitts, and tied beneath her chin the white strings of a sheared gauze bonnet with tiny rosebuds nestling in the rushing of tulle about the face. Once more the bride walked down the world, the observed of all observers, the gazed at of the town, only this time it was brick pavement, not oaken stairs, she trod, and most of the eyes that looked upon her were sheltered behind green jalousies. Nonetheless, however, was she conscious of them, as she made her way to the house of solemn feasting with David by her side. Her eyes rested upon the ground, or glanced quietly at things in the distance, when they were not lifted for a moment in wifely humility to her husband's face at some word of his. Just as she imagined a hundred times in her girlish thoughts that her sister Kate would do, so did she, and after what seemed to her an interminable walk, though in reality it was but four village blocks, they arrived at the house of Spafford. End of chapter 11